This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. For the best experience, listen with headphones. This is a bonus episode of Season 3 of Strange Arrivals. Bonus episodes feature interviews that I conducted during my research, but that I either didn't use or used sparingly in the main episodes. They were great conversations that for one reason or another didn't make the cut, but I think they add valuable perspective to the ideas we explored this season. I had originally planned to do a couple of episodes during Season 3 on the Heaven's Gate group that committed mass suicide in 1997. But as my research continued and the season took shape, I realized that Heaven's Gate didn't quite fit into the larger narrative. In the meantime, though, I had conducted two interviews with leading Heaven's Gate scholars. So this week and next, we'll present those interviews. There are plenty of podcasts and documentaries on Heaven's Gate, so if you've seen or listened to one or more of those, I think this will give you some great insight. If you aren't familiar with Heaven's Gate, this will introduce you to some of the issues surrounding the group and what they believed. In this episode, I talk with George Chrysidis, who is an honorary research fellow in contemporary religion at York St. John University in England. Okay, I'm George Chrysidis, and I'm currently uh, an honorary research fellow at uh, York St. John University in England. Uh, I used to be head of religious studies at the University of Wolverhampton until I retired in 2008. And since then, I've been doing quite a bit of writing, mainly on new religious movements. And um, I've published quite a bit on Heaven's Gate, as well as other UFO religions. Can you talk a little bit about the, the formation of Heaven's Gate? and what the two founders sort of brought to it at the beginning? Yeah, well, the two founders uh, were a man and a woman, Marshall Herth Applewhite, uh, known variously as um, Doe or as uh, 
well, they, the two of them assumed various uh, pseudonyms, Bowen Peak, Guinea and Pig, and finally T and Doe, which we can talk about. Um, Bonnie Nettles was the other half. The relationship was a platonic one, uh, not in any way uh, an amorous one. Bonnie Nettles was the older member of the pair. She was a nurse, and uh, she was interested in theosophical beliefs. Um, the Theosophical Society is perhaps not so well known today, but it's an organization that um, deals mainly with uh, giving lectures on, um, well, anything other than Christian uh, ideas, really. Nettles was particularly interested in channeling, which is uh, communication with spirits, some of uh, the spirits being extraterrestrials. Uh, she came from a Baptist family, evidently, but uh, doesn't appear to be much interested in mainstream Christian beliefs. The Theosophists were interested in pretty well anything other than Christianity. So it was a way of exploring um, other philosophies and points of view. Bonnie Lou Nettles met Marshall Herf Applewhite uh, in a hospital. Uh, the circumstances of that aren't clear. Some people say he was a patient. Some people say he was just visiting. We don't know for sure. Um, that happened um, in 1972. Applewhite was a musician. He was a professor of music at the University of St. Thomas in Texas. His father was... Uh, Christian minister, and he had studied or he had attended theological seminary for a term, which is a bit surprising given his interpretation of the Bible. But I was at a seminary myself, and there were some people with some strange views there. So anyway, uh, when the two of them met up, uh, they decided that they had things in common and that they had a special mission. And in particular, they claimed that they were the two witnesses that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. So, well, the book of Revelation is always a good book for inspiring all sorts of different and novel ideas. They claimed that they were the two witnesses. They started by traveling around the country, uh, leaving notes saying to people, sometimes they'd stick them in pulpits saying the two witnesses are here. And they didn't make terribly much headway that way. Uh, they did this traveling in a hire car, which they failed to return to the owners, and um, both of them were imprisoned for fraud for a short period. So it was evidently in that time in prison that uh, Applewhite developed his ideas about um, ufology and, um, and uh, brought together the worldview that they're kind of famous or notorious for. They got together again once they were freed, and they started organizing public meetings. And the public meetings said, um, do you want to know about uh, UFOs? Uh, they really are here, or words to that effect. And um, one of the interesting things about their lecture series was that they said, this is not a discussion about UFOs. And... That's a key thing, I think, about um, new religious leaders. It, things are never matters of discussion. They're confident, they know, and they arouse curiosity. And I think, again, curiosity is a 
key factor in the development of um, Heaven's Gate and indeed in quite a number of uh, new religions. And if you tell people that that something is the case, I guess it's the same in the advertising industry. Advertisers evidently are better off saying, uh, could this be an effective cure for arthritis or whatever, rather than saying definitely it is. And then people get hooked. They start wondering, well, will this work? And um, they join to find out. So I don't know exactly how many people attended these lectures. I think the uh, the audiences varied depending on the, the venue. But they attracted a following and uh, they took them um, on various locations where they camped and they became a community. There were as many as 200 at its peak. Now, that may sound a lot, but when you compare it with other new religious movements, the Raelian movement, um, probably listeners have heard of Rael, who uh, does all sorts of um, uh, outrageous things and uh, gets people going. Uh, they've got 99,000 uh, followers at the last count. So by comparison, uh, Heaven's Gate was small. And the 200 drops to 39, who were the ones that finally committed suicide. So it was a very small group. It probably would have faded into insignificance if uh, that disaster hadn't happened. The community dispersed at one point. They uh, had organized their public meetings. They had set up their camps. But then they were told that um, the various members were to disperse and to go and uh, propagate the message wherever they could. And then in 1976, they set up a remote camp in Laramie and Wyoming. And that was when they uh, recalled the members of the, the group. They sent out word somehow that they were reassembling and people came back to this camp. And it was at that point that uh, they were given uh, these rather strange names that uh, people associate the group with. They were called things like um, uh, Melody of... They've got rather strange spellings, these names. There, there was uh, Sekudi, who was the one that actually left the movement, Glinodi. Uh, all the names ended in O-D-Y. For reasons that are not totally clear, uh, maybe to sound kind of diminutive, uh, they were the kind of children with doors, their kind of parents. That might have been it. It's also been suggested that because the pair called themselves T and Do, or D was a kind of contraction of uh, Do and T, Do T, so uh, O-D-Y is kind of roughly sound equivalent uh, of the two names. We don't know for sure what the explanation was, but they were all given these special names. And then in the remote camp, they were organized into groups of two. Each one had a Czech partner. The Czech partner, as they called him or her, was of the opposite sex, but the relationship hadn't to be sexual. They were a celibate community. And uh, I mean, some of them had problems about celibacy. Some of them took drugs to control their hormones. Some of them, uh, a few of them resorted to surgery, uh, sometimes doing it themselves, whereby they removed their, their testicles 
Um, I mean, that must have involved quite a lot of commitment to be willing to do that. It would be extremely painful, I would guess. They were organized into uh, these pairs. And then um, there was uh, a lot, uh, well, I should say that uh, in 1985, that was uh, the kind of turning point in the movement because in that year, Bonnie Nettles died of cancer. Now, that's a bit of a problem. If you've got the two, then you're left with just one. So what do you do with that? So the uh, belief was that actually Nettles had gone to this next level above human. That was one of their key teachings, the next level above human, uh, the level at which the extraterrestrials um, lived. And the idea was that uh, she had left the body. She was the, the first of those who were about to do the same. They would leave the body and be sent up to the next level of, of above human. And the belief system was that there were the extraterrestrials who occupied the level above human there was an adversarial community of fallen uh, extraterrestrials. They were the Luciferians. And then there were the humans whose aim uh, was to uh, go above the human level to this level above human. But not everyone would do that. It was only those who were tagged. They were specially chosen individuals that the extraterrestrials had been brought together. So that was basically the philosophy uh, of the group. And uh, that was the kind of background against the, uh, the mass suicide that uh, happened in 1997. What are the thoughts about why, why they decided to disperse when they did and then come back? Is there a theory about why that happened? I don't think there is a theory about why that happened. I think one of the things about some new religious uh, groups is that um, the leader can give orders simply to test commitment. So uh, there was a lot of that that happened in Heaven's Gate. Apple White would tell them to do certain things that had no obvious justification. You know, when they were in these camps, he would say to them, uh, the rule from now on is that no one must speak. So they had to communicate in silence. And then that wasn't working awfully well. So Applewhite said, well, okay, uh, you can communicate, but only use one word uh, for what you want of your partner. So if you were cooking eggs and wanted your partner to pass the eggs, you would say eggs. And then <laughs> that was supposed to be it. The, uh, the partner would know uh, what he or she was meant to do. So... It's unreasonable behavior to expect of people, but it's a kind of test of commitment. If you're prepared to do that, then you've demonstrated that you're willing to obey your leader. So uh, if you tell the group you're going to disperse, then you've kind of demonstrated that you're in command. Maybe it was an attempt to kind of spread the message further. Again, we don't know for sure. It's an, it seems like it's the opposite of so many of the groups that feel the need to sort of sequester people and, and, and have that kind of day-to-day -day control and actually get, find people leaving to be traumatic. 
did he talk about or did they talk about why celibacy was was a part of their teachings? Well, again, these things weren't matters of discussion. So when you've got a new religious group, particularly one that's in the community, then you kind of channel the command down. Certainly, as far as we know, there weren't discussions about these things. If Applewhite told you to do something, then he knew what he was doing. He was the kind of messianic figure, so uh, you don't question that. I mean, Applewhite would say things like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but he didn't really mean that. Uh, he really meant he was right, and he knew it. I think also... These kind of unreasonable commands, it wasn't something that was um, particularly germane to Heaven's Gate. You get other uh, leaders doing that. David Koresh in Waco would say things like, you, you mustn't eat any chocolate today. And then that's what would happen. And particularly if you're saying things that relate to people's diets, um, that is quite an effective way of controlling people. So... Um, you do tend to get this kind of control in uh, in new religious groups, uh, particularly when they're in community. Interesting. So you had mentioned in our email exchange the idea behind charismatic leadership. Yeah, I don't think anyone really understands charismatic leadership. And I'm not saying that I uh, can understand it. Uh, the problem about charisma is that Charisma is not something that people haven't got. Charisma has got to be recognized by others. Right, so it's no good me saying, I've got charisma, it's a pity nobody notices that. That, that doesn't make sense, right? So charisma, basically, it's an ability to attract followers. But I mean, that's not very helpful because it doesn't explain how you can attract followers. So, I mean, one has got to look at the, the kind of ingredients that are in the charismatic leader. And, uh, I mean, somebody's charisma might be a turn-off uh, to other people. Certainly, the people that are held up as charismatic leaders in new religious movements, as far as I'm personally concerned, uh, they're a turn-off. <laughs> I mean, we all know of people that we find really inspiring and others are really not inspiring. Having listened to Applewhite's lectures, I would have to put him in the second category. From my point of view, they're tedious, they're boring. He gives a very strange interpretation of the Bible um, on which he uh, knows very little. His uh, teachings come from a combination of this belief in UFOs and then to that, he adds a kind of biblical justification that's derived from uh, a few uh, accounts in the Gospels, some bits of Revelation, a little bit of Paul, and I don't think he ever refers to the Old Testament at all. So uh, there's very little biblical knowledge. But nonetheless, uh, his followers seem to have been impressed by that. Partly, I think... To be charismatic, uh, you've got to have confidence. Psychologists have commented on uh, new religious leaders have often said that they're narcissistic, that they uh, have a very firm belief in uh, their own um, 
potential and qualifications uh, and status. And I think that's true of a lot. I think having looked at a number of charismatic leaders, I think there are a few other ingredients that uh, I would add. You've got to arouse curiosity, as I, I said. I think that's something that in the study of new religions, we don't talk about a lot. Um, you've got to kind of make people wonder if what you're saying is true, but at the same time, not question it. And then uh, if you can put that across to people, then that's part of being a charismatic leader. Controlling people, uh, as I've mentioned, is another one. If you can give commands that they've got to obey, I think also uh, the scholar David Bromley says that uh, it's important for these leaders to maintain their charisma. Right. So in other words, you've got to make sure that there's nobody that usurps your authority. So in the case of Applewhite and Nettles, they were the only ones that had communication with the extraterrestrials. So uh, that was one of the reasons why they made it clear this is not a UFO spotting group. Because once you do that, then other members are going to say, well, I've had messages from the extraterrestrials. And once you do that, once you democratize the channel of communication with the ETs, then you've lost control. In fact, um, Ryle, the leader of the Raelians, he did have somebody that claimed rivalship at one point. This particular student of his had said that she had been in touch with the Elohim, the extraterrestrials. And Ryle's way of dealing with that was simply to say, you're out, you're not part of the organization. So it's important to maintain this charismatic position that you've established. So another thing that you mentioned was that you talked to you know, quote unquote survivors, but, but people who did not engage in the, in the suicide and were sort of interested in, in how they kind of framed what happened and, and their relationship to it. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Certainly. I think if you or I had heard that a group that we had belonged to had committed suicide and we hadn't been around at the time, we'd be thinking, gosh, I had a lucky escape there. But funnily enough, uh, the three survivors that I've spoken to have said quite the opposite. They've not said we wish that we were there, but um, they've not said we had a lucky escape. What they have said was that we actually left the group before the suicide and we did it voluntarily because we weren't ready for that sort of thing. So... Um, they're still expecting that uh, there will be a further opportunity that uh, they'll have. Now, the extraterrestrials um, only arrive every 2,000 years, evidently. So they're going to have to wait a long time. So uh, their belief is that uh, they will die and reincarnate. And their hope is that um, they will reincarnate at a time when there is the opportunity for... Um, the extraterrestrials to have tagged them and uh, to take them up to the level above human. So it's a kind of hope. They're saying, well, we just weren't ready for it. So they, they weren't spiritually ready? Like they didn't feel as though they, they were committed enough or didn't feel like they had the willpower that was going to be necessary when it happened? What was, what was their sense of what it took to be ready? 
Yeah, I think like yeah, well, I, I I think they felt that probably they didn't have the willpower to do it. Yeah, that they they liked the idea. Um, I mean, perhaps they just didn't want to commit suicide at that particular point, but um, they're still very enthusiastic about Marshall Applewhite. Was the concept of sort of mass suicide and, and that being necessary, was that in sort of their theology from the beginning or was that something that happened later? It was something that happened later. I think they had various expectations over time. Because the Bible says that the two witnesses um, are going to die, they're going to be killed, but they will rise again after three and a half days. Right, so, uh, I mean, that was roughly the period that uh, uh, Jesus took uh, from death to resurrection. So, uh, three and a half days was the time scale that um, the book of Revelation said. Um, Applewhite had suggested at one point that uh, they would attract opposition, that there were people that would be out to kill them, but that's what would happen. Now, that didn't take place, so what you have to do if you're a religious leader is to say, well, not exactly that we were wrong, but it's going to happen in some other way. And eventually, when they were part of this community in the very large mansion that they bought, then they were progressively taught that the dying and rising again would be uh, the suicide and then that wouldn't be the end for them because although their bodies would be dead, then their spirits or their minds or their souls would be taken up and uh, they would be given new bodies appropriate to the level above human. So that was the idea. Yeah, if you tell people that you want them to commit suicide um, at first acquaintance, um, that doesn't work. Now, I used to begin my lectures on this by <laughs> saying to students, uh, actually, I'd like you to know something. I'm the Messiah. Uh, I've got a suicide plan for tomorrow at lunchtime. Who's coming? Uh, of course, if you say that to people, nobody's uh, going to come unless they're taking the meat. Uh, and um, so... Uh, it takes a while to, to persuade people. And I think the puzzle that I have is uh, how do you go from uh, my situation where no one will follow me, uh, I don't have 39 disciples, let alone persuade them to commit suicide. How would I move from where I am now to where Applewhite got himself and actually successfully persuaded 39 people I mean, that's a puzzle. I, I've got one or two ideas about that. Part of the problem uh, with suicide groups is that uh, they tend to be groups that are closed. They're, they're kind of isolated. I, I've actually visited the Heaven's Gate site, and it, it's fairly remote. Well, by British standards anyway, it's got a lot of acreage. Um, I couldn't see exactly how much, but when you look at the the pictures that were taken, it looks a very busy place. But that's only because of a lot of lots of ambulances and emergency vehicles there. Um, it's not on a main road. It's um, to our thinking, it's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there are properties nearby, but they're very large properties with very large grounds. So if you wanted to see your next door neighbour, you'd have quite a walk. So. From our point of view, it's remote. Um, I've actually been to Waco as well, and it's 12 miles outside the, the, the town of Waco. 
So again, you've got a community that is fairly close. The contact with them, kind of everyday uh, normal human beings is fairly limited. In addition, when you think of the amount of time some of them spent with Applewide, they weren't allowed to read newspapers, watch television, kind of find out in any detail what was happening in the outside world. Some of his followers spent a whole 22 years without normal human contact, simply listening to Applewhite all the time. Now, if that's your only source of information, uh, then you're going to absorb it, you're going to take it in. Probably you're not going to be in a position to argue with him, even if the argument is allowed, to say, well, I don't accept your understanding of the Bible. Because religious literacy is not very high. Fewer than half Americans can't name the four Gospels. Now, from my point of view, that's pretty basic. I don't remember not knowing what the four Gospels were. But um, if you're in a country where uh, you don't get religious education in schools, you only get it if you've been to church, and maybe you don't go to church, um, then 20 years, 22 years of hearing Applewhite, you'll think that that is the true interpretation of the Bible. There was one member that actually went on record as saying, oh, wow, I'm really impressed by T and Do's knowledge of Scripture. Well, I mean, obviously she couldn't have known very much about the Bible to say that, because uh, apart from anything else, he only refers to a very, very few Bible passages, which she interprets in this rather strange way. So the kind of combination of being in community being almost isolated from the outside world, being there for a very long time with no kind of touchstone of uh, reality outside the organization, um, then uh, that's going to make for uh, a situation where you think, well, maybe this is right. Uh, the apple bites the leader. So I mean, some people would say that's brainwashing. Um, I don't like the term we try to avoid using it because it's not clear what it means, but it's certainly psychological conditioning that uh, you're subjected to. It sounds like a lot of that stuff can be applied to Jim Jones. I, I think another sort of obviously huge mass suicide and the, uh. the uh, thread he felt from members leaving, you know, and um, and he had you know, in the middle of the jungle and, and being conditioned by doing these sort of fake suicide runs. There was a difference with Jim Jones, and uh, this is part of the puzzle about Heaven's Gate. Um, Jim Jones' community were under threat. There was um, an opposing organization called Concerned Parents, and the trigger for the suicide was that they had sent a senator out to investigate the organization. So they were a community, in a sense, under threat. But the puzzle about Heaven's Gate is that there was nobody that was after them. Uh, there, there weren't opponents, uh, there weren't anti-cult people that um, were saying, we want to rescue our children. Um, in fact, there weren't children. The average age was 47 of the, when the, the suicides started. So uh, it, it's uh, a real puzzle in many ways. 
My conversation with George Chrysidis will continue after the break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So when you've, you've talked about a, sort of a, a handful of Bible passages that Applewhite kind of used was is there any sort of connective tissue between them is is there some common theme or are they picked by random or they were random there were mainly passages about tending the soil actually because one of his expressions was the earth is going to be spaded under so in other words the uh, earth in its present form uh, was at an end um the uh extraterrestrials were going to dig up the earth and renew it. Um, so Applewhite would quote passages like, my father is the gardener, and uh, how uh, we were the, the workers in the, the vineyard. Uh, it was that sort of thing that uh, he brought up. Uh, plus, uh, as I said, bits of revelation. I can't recall the exact passages, but the idea was that the earth was uh, kind of at an end, but also the, the earth was a kind of vineyard that needed tending and uh, it needed radical transformation. Okay, interesting. So what was the root of their belief in UFOs? Was there something in particular that, that caught their attention? And I'm talking about Applewhite and Nettles or just the that they were in the culture and it was something they mm. kind of latched on to. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Now, Nettles um, had been into channeling, and um, I don't think we know what sort of channeling in particular, but certainly some people that do channeling of spirits find that their spirit guide is actually uh, someone in another planet is somehow communicating. Now, it may have been that Nettles thought that. We don't know for sure. But also, there, there was a whole ambient culture at the time. The movement started in the mid-70s. So in the mid-70s, there was certainly an interest in UFOs and in space travel. The Americans had landed on the moon in 1969, so big interest in that. Uh, there was a book that came out, I don't know if listeners will recall it, uh, Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken. I don't know if you remember that one. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the show that followed it. Yeah. Mm. It was very popular. And what Daniken, von Daniken said was that it wasn't just that there were people in outer space, 
they had actually been here, and that's what the Bible talks about. Now, I don't think we know whether Applewhite had read von Däniken or not, but this was certainly in the ambient culture. A lot of people had read that book. Even some colleagues of mine not only had read it, but actually found it convincing that when Ezekiel and Elijah talk about chariots, that these are actually spacecraft that they're talking about that visited the Earth, it was a very physical interpretation of the Bible. And the world that Christians think about as heaven uh, wasn't any kind of supernatural world. It was a physical world. It was just kind of far distant. Um, it was where uh, people in outer space lived and they were about to visit the planet or they had already done so. And uh, that was the idea. And then in the cinema, of course, uh, there were uh, lots of films that were very popular and on television, uh, Star Trek, Doctor Who and uh, the Daleks. I don't know if they were very influential in terms of religion, but there was the whole ambient culture of the film 2001. E.T., I think, came a bit later. Close Encounters. I think lots of us went and saw these films and found them great entertainment, but didn't attach uh, very much by way of truth to them. But some people did. I mean, some people did think that this showed that there were extraterrestrials. And I've known a few people that said, yeah, they, they've been here. One thing that uh, I think I pointed out in an article I wrote on Heaven's Gate is that when you've got a leader of a religious movement, they usually make some plan for who's going to take over. Because um, in most religions, the leader accepts that uh, they're going to die and leave followers behind. So you, you get this with, well, with the present Dalai Lama, for instance, he hasn't named a successor, but um, there are known methods whereby you select the, the next one. So people know what to do. Or maybe a leader has got a right-hand man or a woman that is kind of ready to take over. With Applewhite, this wasn't the case. It was only Applewhite. Uh, there, there were no other teachers that uh, did the teaching, propagated the ideas. And it appears he was also quite seriously ill before the suicides of 1997. So um, that perhaps indicates that uh, he had actually planned to end his movement uh, the way he did, because uh, otherwise there would have been nothing left. I would suspect that the rest of the group wouldn't have known really what to do. I think there's that aspect that uh, needs to be considered as well. The other thing that's important about the, the suicides is that they occurred probably exactly 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus. Because um, 1997, I think historians agree that uh, Jesus wasn't born in year zero or the year one. It was possibly 4 BCE. So that being the case, 1997 would be exactly 2,000 years on. So. Round about that time, there were a number of groups that um, uh, either expected an immediate return of Christ um, or, uh, in the case of Waco, that was the uh, the crunch point as far as the, the groups were concerned. There was also the Solar Temple where there were mysterious deaths, maybe suicides, maybe murders. In that period, you were kind of at the end of the millennium, and that was reckoned to be significant in 
many ways for a number of groups. Is there something that I haven't asked or, or that you think is important for people to understand about Heaven's Gate? Yeah, I think we've covered most things. I think the other thing I would want to say about um, community uh, religions is that one of the incentives to join is that it relieves your decision-making. So when people that live like me, you've got to think, how do we earn our living or how do you pay a mortgage? What are we going to have to eat tonight? There are these mundane decisions that we all have to make. If you're in a religious community that is organized the way Heaven's Gate was, you don't make these decisions, they're made for you. You're kind of leaked after. And Applewhite was the kind of father figure. So it's almost like a reversion to childhood. Yeah, you've got your parents there that will make the decisions for you. It's also the case that um, it's not young people that join, and certainly not in the case of Heaven's Gate. The average age, as I mentioned, was 47. So I think the oldest was 72, and uh, the youngest was, I think, 27, if I remember right. So you've got a large age range in the group. And unlike a number of religious groups where maybe somebody has finished school and is having a gap year. We don't have so many gap years now in Britain, but um, if people had a gap year, then they would think what to do with it. And that was quite typically how some people got involved in um, new religions like the Unification Church. But that wasn't the case with uh, Heaven's Gate. These were professional people. Uh, there was... Uh, People that were computer programmers, um, there was a gourmet chef, there was a nurse, um, there was a mechanic. One of them was a nutritionist. So they were all professional people. So it's very easy to think you must be really stupid to join a group like that. But these people weren't stupid. Uh, they made a conscious decision to uh, join Apple White and they obviously found him convincing. And uh, people can be convinced about all sorts of things, including wanting to commit suicide. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Rima El Kayali, Jesse Funk, and Noemi Griffin with executive producers Alexander Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey, and supervising producer Josh Thane. Learn more about the show at grimandmild.com slash strangearrivals, and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.